quick little disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. All episodes after the week of September 14th are pre-recorded because I had a baby. In an effort to really step into motherhood and get to know my baby, as well as learn my new role as a mom, I'm taking some time off of work, which includes this podcast. So if you hear me talking about being pregnant in this episode, don't worry, I'm not still pregnant. I had the baby. I just recorded this before I had him. So just thought I'd clear the air in case you guys were confused. I will be back recording new episodes with more current life updates about me and baby and how I'm doing as a mom in the middle of October. All right, let's get back to the episode. Just Man's the podcast. Record an intro to the podcast. <laughs> I don't usually come on here singing, so if anyone is new, hi, my name is Amanda. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Man's the podcast. Hi, if you're new here, I am so freaking delirious today. So I'm having my baby in five days. I'm recording this pre-birth because when this goes out, I will have already had him. But I'm having my baby in five days. I will be 39 weeks in five days. Well, in four days, actually, because I'm getting a C-section the day after I turn 39 weeks. And I'm just super freaking delirious today. (laughs) I've done like nothing in terms of physical. I've done probably five hours of computer work and podcast editing today. And I'm feeling super productive, but I am feeling super lazy and couch potato-y at the same time. Also, it doesn't help that I'm wearing a really unflattering sweatshirt and I have the hood up and my hair is back so I look like an actual potato. It's fine. We're thriving. What is today's episode about? Okay, so let's get into the episode for today. I'm interviewing Maggie, Dr. Maggie of the Wellness Tribe. She is actually my chiropractor and I freaking love this girl. She and I hit it off immediately from the first moment I stepped foot in her office. And she's just been such a special person to me throughout my whole pregnancy. Well, probably throughout the whole last trimester because we didn't meet until the last trimester. But yeah, so we are getting into chiropractic care today. I had seen a chiropractor before I came to see Maggie around 36 weeks. And it was before pregnancy and I was just seeing her for kind of maintenance. It was like acupuncture to me. Like once I got my hormones fixed through acupuncture, I kind of just kept it up for maintenance purposes. So when I went to a chiropractor before I got pregnant, it was just maintenance purposes. If I felt like, you know, my ribs felt like they were out of place or I didn't really feel aligned, I would go to a chiropractor. But when I met Maggie, I sought her out specifically because she likes to treat a lot of prenatal and postpartum women and she is trained in the Webster technique which we get into in this episode which helps flip breech babies and obviously if you guys have been following along you know that my baby was breech the whole pregnancy (laughs) and I went to her to try and flip my breech baby but also just get some relief because when you're in the last trimester your back hurts, your legs hurt, 
your pelvis is tight. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of things that are just not comfortable and cozy in the last trimester. So I primarily went to her for flipping my breech baby, but I also went for just pregnancy relief in general. You guys might be thinking, how do you get adjusted when you're pregnant? Because if you've been to chiropractic, you know that you lay on like a chiropractic, chiropractic, yeah, chiropractic table. So there's these things called donut pillows that basically are exactly what they sound like. It's a flat, probably four inch pillow that has a big hole in the middle. And we stack two of those on the table so that my belly can just fit right in it. So it's super safe, super, you know, we're not crushing baby over here. You guys know I'm so into health and wellness and there's so many benefits of chiropractic that we get into in this episode. So if you're interested in chiropractic care, but might be scared because you have, you know, probably heard or maybe seen videos of someone getting adjusted and their neck cracks into like a million different pieces. And that that's scary. You know, I would be lying if I said that before I first got chiropractic care, I wasn't scared because it is scary to be manipulated and kind of just give over complete control to somebody when it comes to your body and specifically when it comes to like cracking your neck. Um, yeah, it's a little sketch, but it's actually the most relieving and just, oh, it feels so good when you get your neck cracked. But yeah, if you guys are interested and haven't really dived into the chiropractic care world yet, definitely keep listening to this episode. We also talk a lot about pregnancy. So like I said, Maggie treats a lot of prenatal and postpartum women, but she's also pregnant and she's had a baby already. So being 22, I don't really have a lot of people in my circle who I can relate to and who can understand what I'm going through because not a lot of my my friends have been pregnant. And Maggie has kind of been like my pregnancy mentor (laughs) the past month. And it's been really awesome to just bounce some ideas off of her, get some advice, have her share some resources with me, and just be a point of contact and a point of resources really for me because like I said, being 22, I don't really have anybody around me my age that is in a situation like me. So it's been really nice to talk to her about that. We talk all about the pressure to bounce back after birth, the medical side of birth, the importance of slowing down postpartum, and just so much more like pregnancy nutrition everything about pregnancy in terms of health and wellness. So this is definitely a really fun, interesting episode if you're interested in chiropractic care and pregnancy. So you got started with chiropractic care after discovering that it worked for you after a snowboarding injury, correct? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Talk about that and how you got into chiropractic and how you fell in love with it. So I grew up in Colorado And I started on snow on skis when I was three. And by the time I was eight, switched to snowboarding and just kind of took off with that and was snowboarding at a level that, you know, most freaks most people out. And so I had many, many, many crashes and I had two in particular where I actually ended up breaking bones in my spine. And so, um, you know, in the medical culture, if you break a bone and it wasn't, it had, it had no, um, direct impact on my spinal cord. So it wasn't like 
this scary thing that affected my spinal cord. It was just the bone. But when that happened, um, they just tell you, you know, it's going to heal. It'll just heal. And that's really all they do. And unfortunately, that's true. Bones do heal. But I had essentially chronic pain since. And so I was living and working in Lake Tahoe coaching snowboarding. And it turned out that one of my clients, her parents were chiropractors. And I didn't know really anything about chiropractic. Just someone told me that, oh, yeah, you're going to get a great tip from Madden's parents. Oh, yeah, why is that? Oh, they're chiropractors. They have this great business. Chiropractor, I think that's what I need. So I started seeing this woman, and I, I was in a transitional period of my life between university, finishing my undergrad, and wanting to go to medical school. And um, I was really attracted to the style of life that she was living. So she had these two little girls and she owned a practice with her husband and they both worked about 15, 20 hours a week. And they would take a month off every summer and go to Hawaii and they had a boat for Lake Tahoe and they owned their home. And they were super passionate about health and well-being. And there was just something about the combination of seeing um, them living their best life helping people heal and, and not working like a zillion hours. <laughs> and so I, through my care with them, it wasn't really anything profound in my body that I experienced. It was more like the lifestyle in general that inspired me to go to school. So I started school and then that took off to like a whole nother level and layer of the potential that life can be through living what us chiropractors would consider a chiropractic lifestyle. Were you into any other kind of alternative holistic method of health before chiropractic? Did you know anything else like acupuncture or anything like that? No, actually. I think most of that exposure, no, that's not true. I had had a little bit of acupuncture and I see you. It didn't really occur to me that that was like really a career though. So what are some of the most common reasons that people go in to see a chiropractor? In my office or in general? Just in general. Um, Probably the main reasons are chronic low back and neck pain, um, certain neurological issues like sciatica, carpal tunnel or pain tingling numbness into the hands. And then of course, in in my practice specifically, I see a lot of pregnant women. So a lot of pregnancy-related um, pain, breach Clipping, babies, breach babies. <laughs> yeah, breach babies, um, car accidents, hmm. people correlate chiropractic care with car accidents, but generally speaking, some migraine headaches, a lot of migraine headaches, almost always some kind of pain related to the spine. I think so many people, when they haven't been to a chiropractor, are shit scared of them because, you know, when you think of a chiropractor or you see a video, it's like you see an aggressive adjustment and people are scared of like their neck being cracked. It's just, it's, it's kind of scary if you don't go to someone who's gentle and, you know, isn't going to, you, you use the word torque for like when you get adjusted. So for someone listening who hasn't had chiropractic care and is kind of skeptical about it, how would you break it down? What is this treatment like? Like what is an adjustment like? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think most people in my experience, even in my office and people come to me, I think most people have the wrong understanding of what chiropractic is up to, why we do what we do and the many different approaches to receiving an adjustment. 
So the technique piece where you're talking about like, what is it actually like to receive an adjustment? We actually have 214 different recorded techniques. So really there's a version of chiropractic for everybody. And that includes things from receiving what we would consider like a bony adjustment or a osseous adjustment where you're actually feeling movement in your spine or hearing sound in your spine with a higher force introduced to having using an instrument only or using the drop table so the table that moves up and down only or some practitioners only work on the upper cervical spine and they use instrumentation there's a type of chiropractic called network that's all light touch so while there's a you know there is a concern i can see people who are unfamiliar with the practice of receiving like a big force adjustment which in my was is what i do and in my opinion, has one of the greatest impacts on changing the course of human potential, receiving a bigger input. It doesn't always have to look that way, but there also has to be an understanding that chiropractors, um, you know, go th we go through a very rigorous educational process, and um, we actually have the lowest incidence of malpractice insurance of any or malpractice of any practitioner. In healthcare. So it's very, very, very safe. Receiving an osseous adjustment from a very skilled practitioner actually feels, yeah, you often feel movement in your actual spine, but for me, it feels um, like my system is at greater ease. It's like releasing energy that's binding your body in a certain way. And once it's actually moved, when that energy is moved, when that part of the spine is released, it's like you can breathe better, you can think better, you can sleep better. And I mean, through your own experience, you can share what that's like for you, but be, not wanting to be adjusted in that way doesn't exclude you from being able to receive chiropractic care is my point. How can someone go about finding the right chiropractic care for them though? Because it is kind of, I think it is, you have to be more selective, but are there certain things that people can look out for in terms of like what's on someone's website or do they have to consult with their chiropractor beforehand? How can they go about finding the right person? That's a really good question and probably the most important question. Um, so for me, that comes back to the chiropractor's philosophy. So chiropractic has a very, very clear and very old philosophy. And that philosophy is our science. And what it says is that you, Amanda, or me, Maggie, as humans have an innate intelligence that coordinates all the actions in our body. And it utilizes the nervous system as a conduit for doing so. So there's this understanding that your body has like a chi how we, you know, that's what they would say in, in acupuncture. You have chi, you have life force, you have energy that moves your body and that distinguishes you from a dead person because the corpse, me, the corpse and me, the animated version have all the same matter. It's just one lacks life. So a chiropractor who really lives and teaches that philosophy and, and adjusts someone with that in mind at all times, understanding that this is about life force um, has a significantly higher level of intention in what they do. So if I was looking for somebody on the internet, I would be looking for a vitalistic chiropractor. That's the term, vitalism. Um, 
and on the spectrum of chiropractic philosophies, you're going to find people who practice very medically. Um, and I, I think the further away an individual is from that true philosophy of chiropractic, in my experience, the less finesse, the less connected, the less intentional the actual adjustment is because the meaning and intention behind it is completely different, if that makes sense. Totally. And I think, I mean, just going back to what chiropractic kind of makes you feel like it's, for me, it makes me feel so aligned in my body just after an adjustment. But for people listening who are like, okay, I really like the idea of chiropractic, but how long is it going to take me to see results? What would you say? So that's totally, that's an almost impossible thing to answer. (laughs) Only because we like to think we're really unique right? And how we present in our physical being, like we're so unique, everyone's different. And there's truth in that. We also all have similar patterns, patterns that come through family, that come through culture, they come through the food that you eat. So really when I'm evaluating somebody after I see them, I'm able to give them a better idea of how long I think it, it will be for them to expect change because I can understand the depth of a pattern. If someone has had a pattern, then we could even talk about that as pain. If someone's had a chronic issue for 10, 15, 20 years, that's going to take a much longer time to unravel and integrate into the body than somebody say, who, who has had an issue for a short period of time, three months, three weeks. It also obviously is going to be contented, contingent upon your lifestyle practices. So people who I've seen that people who get better results, faster results, are individuals who spend a lot of time outside. So they're in sun. They generally have some kind of movement practice. So some sort of exercise routine. They drink good water. They drink a good amount of water. They have a, a certain level of consciousness of what they're consuming. And, and that's not only food, but also what they're consuming on their cell phone. So I guess you could almost say the more um, conscious an individual is of their state of well-being, the faster they see results. And when you talk about patterns, do you mean things like bad posture as well? Because I mean, if someone has a habit, that's going to be harder to kick and get your body more aligned than someone who is willing to, you know, do the work outside of, you know, your chiropractic office too. Right. So patterns, when I say patterns, your body has memory, right? like not just your conscious mind, but your actual physical being has memory. So every yeah, like muscle memory, muscle memory, even your each, every little cell in your body has memory. That's kind of how your immune system works. Mm. Like it, you get the flu and then your body remembers the flu. So next right. time you encounter the flu, it can, it can fight it. So when we talk about patterns, we're not necessarily talking about habits. Habits can be the expression of a pattern or bad posture can be the expression of a pattern, but patterns really begin from things as early as birth. So having have the baby having a, tra- a traumatic birth experience can cause different patterns in their, in their structure that can cause patterns in their psyche, that can cause patterns in emotion. Or say you grow up in a home where there's a lot of yelling that is assaulting your nervous system, which creates a pattern, which causes even your physical structure to kind of shut down. So we're working with patterns. 
we don't necessarily always know the origin of them, but it's 99.9% of the time manifesting as some sort of structural issue. And when I say structural issue, that could look like pain, tingling, numbness, insomnia, infertility, indigestion. All of those things are the result of patterning that's been going on in a system for a long time that's no longer serving the person. Our body is always responding to our environment and doing the best it can do. But if we get stuck, if we get stuck in a mindset or stuck because of habitual yelling or stuck because we have a crazy snowboarding accident, the body has to make an adaptation and it doesn't necessarily come back out of that into expansion. So it's taking people from contraction to expansion through understanding how deep their patterns go. And so how do you go about curating plans for specific patterns for people? Yeah, so the first visit in my office, we take some exams to actually get some objective measurements. So we're looking, we do some basic neurological tests to understand how is the nervous system responding? How is it interfacing its environment? Uh, I do a posture image. While we're not looking to necessarily change the posture or change those neurological tests, we use them as a baseline to understand how well the body is functioning. And then for me, the most important piece is really what shows up in that person's body. So through years of practice and working with thousands and thousands of people, your sense of touch becomes really, really, really finute, finite, minute. Yeah, yeah. I I just made up a new word. But yeah, so your, your skill as a practitioner becomes something you don't even really need the story of the individual anymore. I don't necessarily need to know where they've been or what injuries they've had to understand if that's playing out in the system because you start to feel a certain tone quality in in the bone and the muscle and the ligament. Um, You start to see it play out as having muscle contraction patterns on one side versus the other or crisscrossing and seeing how that causes rotation in, in the pelvis or rotation in the rib cage or a short leg on one side or whatever. So you start to learn through palpation, so touching the spine and connecting with that individual in a physical way, how their life history is showing up in their body today. And the process is really about creating freedom and space for them to either integrate those experiences or disintegrate them. So it's either allowing them to come online more and have those experiences elevate their process or being able to actually heal them and dissipate them. So for someone who's coming in for, let's say chronic pain from like a car accident or something, and you give them a plan for treatment of how long they can expect or roughly, is there a possibility that their pain could completely go away? There's always a possibility, yeah. So for someone who is pregnant like me, because we've been specifically working on flipping my stinking, stubborn breech baby, (laughs) how do you go about doing that? What's the science behind it? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a specific technique called the Webster technique, and it was created, or I shouldn't say created, it was discovered by a chiropractor who's now dead, who practiced out of Kansas City named Dr. Webster. And he had a really big pediatric and family practice and just noticed, he started recording that when he had pregnant women come in and he did a certain sequence of adjustments, that it balanced the structure of the pelvis, 
and 89% of the time the baby would flip on his or her own. So this, this kind of like brings the chiropractic piece a little bit more structurally. So when we, when we see a woman who's pregnant, if her pelvis has any sort of misshapenness to it because of force. So for example, you're an athlete, you've played a lot of volleyball and you've fallen a lot. Every time you fall, that changes the structure of your body. So if I see someone like yourself, who's an athlete, who's had a lot of minute traumas that change the shape of your pelvis over time, you end up having imbalances that cause the ligaments of the uterus to pull. And it actually causes the uterus itself to become misshapen. So instead of being like this nice balloon shape, it, it gets flattened. And so through Webster technique, we're checking bone muscle ligament always of the pelvis and of course the whole spine, but specifically of the pelvis in the front and the back and anywhere we see any sort of imbalance, we're releasing that. And there's a, there's a protocol to it. So it's, it's a documented protocol of what steps go first. And more often than not, the baby flips <laughs> and in certain cases, they, you know, we have to, we have to believe that when they don't flip, there's always a reason for it. We, we don't necessarily know until they're born why that is. You share with me that there were main, mainly like three reasons why babies won't flip. What were they again? Right. So the first one is that the cord is wrapped around their neck. So if the cord is wrapped around their neck, which is not uncommon, that happens and it's totally okay. But if the cord is wrapped around the neck multiple times, for example, and they're super close and tethered to the placenta, they don't actually have the physical ability to flip. Can also see um, sometimes women, their uterus shape is actually inverted. So if the shape of the uterus allows for more space on the top than the bottom, then the baby is going to stay that way. Those are really the two primary reasons why we wouldn't see a baby turn. And as much as we like to rely on ultrasound technology, especially late in pregnancy, it's very difficult to actually see what's going on. No, ultrasounds are so all over the place because the lady told me, she's like, yeah, your baby's weighing in at 6.8 pounds, but he could be 5.8 pounds or he could be 7.8. So I'm like, what? why even tell me then? <laughs> They're not accurate. They, they told my sister that my niece was going to be like a nine pound baby. And then, so she had a C-section and she was like six pounds and five ounces. <laughs> was that the reason that they made her get a C-section? No, she, she was breech. And my sister oh. did not she did not participate in chiropractic care. So um, I don't know if it would have helped her or not, but she decided not to participate in that. Um, And so, yeah, she had a scheduled cesarean. So what was the percentage of babies slipping from that technique again? 89. Gosh, my odds are just not good. (laughs) When they say only one in 88 babies is breach. Right. And then- So it's- you can just consider yourself unique. Yeah, I'm special. <laughs> yeah, you are special. It's crazy though, because I feel like before coming to see you, I never realized how tight my muscles were there. And obviously being an athlete, like it makes sense. But I think with anything in terms of pain or just like things that are not aligned in your body, it's hard to recognize them if they've been there for so long. And I think going to chiropractic care is something that's really cool because 
once you get adjusted for the first time, like you might not notice an immediate like relief or immediate like change in your body, but you'll feel a shift. And it's cool because then you're like, oh shit, like I, my body really wasn't aligned. And then you go and you're like, oh, okay, this, this is working. This is doing something. It's, it's cool. Yeah. It's really interesting. We become, we, we adapt so well. We adapt so well to whatever shows up in our lives to the point where we don't even always notice change. So I have people who are like so twisted or really imbalanced and inside of themselves, that's become their new normal. And it's through the process of being adjusted that they start to realize what it actually feels like to feel relaxed or what it actually feels like um, to go for a run and not be putting more weight on your right leg versus your left leg. It's, it's interesting how the body just shifts and creates a new normal and it continues to do that. It will continue to do that until it gets to the point where it's pathological. And that's another argument and reason why, of course, we always want to see people before they have any sort of symptoms. It's a form of wellness care kind of yeah, keeping us like ahead. Of, it's the same reason that you eat healthy food. You don't wait until you, you know, you get overweight or become diabetic to start eating healthy. It's a decision you make proactively, not only to prevent illness, but to feel good. We have no idea about prevention or like we don't have the we can't remind we can't wrap our heads around the concept of prevention in our in our society I feel like because we just wait until things are wrong and then we fix them when it's like sometimes it could be too late but that's like something that I think is so important that people need to hear is like do it while you can before it's a problem so that it never becomes a problem exactly and I think that I mean prevent preventative care or preventative practices are really important but what I've learned through my own experience you know, kind of taking off on this holistic or vitalistic lifestyle path is that it stops becoming, you stop doing it because you're trying to prevent something bad. You start doing it because your quality of life in the present is just dramatically healthier and you have more energy and you sleep better and you you feel good about who you are and you can show up in your life in a different way. And for me, those are the reasons why, why I choose to eat vibrant foods and get chiropractic care and get acupuncture and have a movement practice. It's kind of like an extra bonus <laughs> that you're potentially preventing illness. But really for me, it's a lot more about like just having a really high quality of life. Well, and that's, that's like any, any act of self-care. I feel like so many people are like, I don't know how to implement self-care or I don't know how to start. And I'm like, it's literally just about making yourself a priority. And then once you do so one or two times, like it's going to be the norm because you will realize how good you feel and you want to sustain that. Yeah. And I agree with you. And I think from that point, you can show up for people differently. Totally. If you're taking care of yourself, you can be a better spouse. You can be a better daughter. You can be a better parent. You can be a better coworker. You can provide better content for your podcast, whatever that looks like. And it's certainly a form of self-love, which I don't know if it's because I operate primarily in this culture that I think that it's becoming more of a norm or if it really is becoming more of a norm for people to, to want to take care of themselves because they have a commitment to living today right? You're, when you're committed to living in today, 
something you need to wake up and feel good about today. I think people are realizing how important it is to continuously work on yourself, especially my generation. It's like, I always hear just, you know, of my parents' generation, people are like, you know, your priorities on the kids and your priority priority is about the kids when you start having kids. And that was something that I kind of not struggled with, but I realized when I became pregnant, I was like, I, I know I'm having a child and my world is going to revolve in a sense around him. But at the same time, if I'm not catering to myself and filling my cup, like I can't be a good mom to him and I can't do all that I want to do for him if I'm not taking care of myself. And I think people are realizing that, especially in my generation, that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't show up for people. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that that also comes back to like our roots as a species where really until 50, probably a hundred years ago, people raised children in community. Yeah. And it was, it was normal to ask for help. And it was normal, um, you know, if your mother needed a break, you could run over to the neighbor's house and it would be normal for you to just run in and, and sit and have dinner with them. Whereas we've gotten so far away from community. I mean, we live in a world of technology where people can literally go weeks without seeing anyone because they have this phone that they can, they can have a false sense of community through that. But um, I mean, you and I have talked about this extensively, even just in the postpartum period, being able to ask for help and just saying, Hey, I, I need help. I, I need, I need a moment to take a shower or lay down and take a nap. And we, we think women, not necessarily you and I, but the culture really puts a lot of pressure on women to be able to quote unquote, do it all be a mom, take care of herself, um, have the career. When I think the way to do those things the most successfully is to be able to have support and that support and asking for help. And you'll learn next week (laughs) when you have your baby, you know, that you, yeah, you are going to be showing up for him in a different way, but you absolutely have to show up for yourself first. And that requires as a mother, that just requires asking for help. Versus in the stage of life you're in pre-baby, you don't have to ask for so much support because you can just make those autonomous decisions. And I think it's about also getting the right support and having the right support system around you because I think that could be also, that could dictate your success in a way is if you're, you know, you're asking for help, but you're not necessarily asking the right people for help. So, you know, if if that means like your friends who want to come see the baby or are family members that want to come see the baby, you know, want to come over, but they're not willing to like really help you out. It's like, you got to prioritize yourself and realize like you have to set boundaries in that circumstance. Yeah, I completely agree. I love that. And, um, the first 40 days, she talks about the perfect postpartum guest and it's a person who doesn't stay more than an hour and she comes in, she washes the dirty dishes in the sink and she throws a little laundry in for you and she makes you a cup of hot chocolate and, see, and checks it with the mother, right? Because everybody wants to hold a brand new baby, of course. I mean, I include myself in that, but we forget a lot of the time that we need to be checking in with the mother and allowing a lot of space, space for her. But yeah, it's setting boundaries in general is not easy. It's well, not I, easy. I think that's the thing too, with this culture of like, you have to bounce back right away. Like that's, that was something that showed up for me really early on in pregnancy. People were like, Oh, you're going to bounce back so quick or, Oh, you're only belly, your arms are skinny. And I'm like, why are we pay- like focusing on that? 
that's not what I care about. I don't, I don't care to bounce back because the, the, you know, realistically my body is going to change. It's going through a lot of shit during birth. So it's not going to look the way that it did. Even if I get close to what that looked like, it's not going to be the same. So I think we put so much pressure on the mom to bounce back or just get back to their normal life. And that's why that book, the first 40 days is so interesting because it's, it talks about how postpartum is a transition period in itself and how you're going to heal, you're going to process, and you really need to allow space for that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. In fact, that's something that really triggers me. Um, seeing, seeing so much pressure and seeing almost an idolization of certain women in the influencer community where there is such an emphasis on how quickly they get back to the gym or how quickly they go back to work or there's almost like a sense of pride in that. And as someone who really, really honors like a more traditional sense of postpartum, um, that that's hard for me to accept. And I, I very much try to teach the women in my practice that that's, that's not necessarily a healthy thing to do. And what's super fascinating, I think it's in that book, she, um, Hung Oh talks about it, but, you know, in Chinese medicine, which is ancient, it's like 3000 years old, they have noticed that women who take an appropriate amount of time to really lie in or do their consolidation after birth and eat really nourishing foods and learn how to nurse their baby and just take their time with it, have, um, much better aging process so they age slower which you know if you if you wanted to take that another layer you could actually say that's vanity but really they age better their hormones come back to normal better and they have an easier um, menopause so yeah your body goes through as you say a lot of shit in pregnancy and birth and then you have this like coming down of all your hormones being jacked up for nine months and suddenly your system is trying to reorganize that and figure that out. And I, I guess I feel a little ashamed of our, our society putting so much pressure on women to look and be a certain way after delivering a baby. And I will tell you, I have a son and before I got pregnant with him, I was in really good shape and I didn't even have to think about losing weight after I had him. I was super focused on learning how to do the mom thing and my body just found it's normal again. And I like to teach people too, that why would you want your body back? Like, right. why not have a better body? Like you can, that's what you I'm can, saying. Like you can I have an even more powerful body and even more, if you want it to be super chiseled, you can chisel your body. If, if you like having the voluptuous curves, you can have that too. I don't know why there's this concept of going backwards. I don't either. And that's something I w- that I was super like passionate about in the beginning was I don't want to go back. I want to jump forward. And, and yeah, my body might've looked a certain way, but whenever I think about like what my body's going to look like in the future, it's, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with what it looked like before. And I think what we were saying about the lying in period and really taking time to process, like our society does really idolize those women who go to back to work after the first two weeks. But for me, it's like, I'm such a control freak and I really work hard day in, day out. So for me, almost taking that time off is like going to be, make me more proud to like actually be able to take that time off because we live in a culture that 
really praises work, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle 24 seven, even when you're not pregnant. So for me, it's like, I'm going to be, it's going to be a challenge to take time off and really lie in and listen to my body and let it do what it needs to do to heal. Because I think, you know, as you were saying, when you didn't even think about getting your body back, you weren't stressed about it. And I think stress is the number one thing that causes, you know, us to hold on to weight or us to have a postpartum illness. And I think if we take the stress away and we don't listen to the people who are like putting pressure on us, it's a lot easier to become aligned again and and really like help encourage your body to heal. Yeah, totally. And I think what you said, you know, it's kind of a challenge for you because you enjoy what you do so much and you can get so into your work that taking a step back and in, in this postpartum journey, reprioritizing that just because you're taking maybe a few weeks or a month or a couple months off is by no means a death sentence to your career. And it's, it's not easy. I mean, sometimes you have to just make a commitment not to be on social media because that'll start driving you to want to be involved in that culture. But it's such a short season of life such a short season of life and you won't ever have those days back of just nourishing yourself and just connecting with your with Lucas and with your son you're not you're never going to have that twice you're going to have you have the next 40 50 years of your career to and work on a, that in a sense too it's like with covid being a thing they're not allowing anybody into the delivery room because I'll be delivering at a hospital. And since I'm probably getting a C-section, like I'll be there for three days. And like my mom's not allowed to be there. My brother can't come. My dad can't come visit. No one can come visit. And before it's like all these people just came to the hospital and they showed up and they met the baby. And it's like, I'm almost thankful that none of them can come. Like I love my family and I want them to meet my baby, but like I'm almost thankful that they can't come because I... I'm going to be one, if I get a C-section, I'm probably going to be really drugged up and out of it and really in pain and not a really fun person to be around. I don't want to feel like I have to host somebody. And also too, like this baby I've been growing for nine months, but this baby is also a stranger. Like I have no idea who the fuck he is. And like, I need to get to know him, you know? And I think there's something so sacred about it just being me and Lucas. I mean, and like the nurse and and everybody, but like me and Lucas and the baby for the first three days, And that's, what's so cool about the, you know, the first 40 days, which we'll get into of postpartum and and really just like lying in is you get to get to know your baby and you get to get to know your role as a mom. And I think that's where a lot of the illnesses come in. It's we're trying to wear so many different hats right away when it's like, let's just focus on one thing, which is like your newborn child. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a little blessings with this whole COVID thing. That sounds like one for sure. Totally. But being pregnant at 22, I literally only know one other person who's pregnant besides who's like 25 and then you're pregnant. And honestly, like you've been such almost a mentor to me in a way, because I don't, I don't know anybody. I'm so, you know, new to this world. Nobody in my general like scene of peers is in this phase of life with me. And so it's been cool. Like you have a three-year-old and you're currently pregnant, um, but you also come from a really like educated and holistic health viewpoint. So that's something I'm really drawn to. I want you to talk about your first pregnancy and your experience with that and how you got passionate about helping women. 
Well, first, I just want to acknowledge you because I think if I was pregnant at 22, I don't know that I would be asking all these questions and, <laughs> and really just your journey with, with trying to find the right way to deliver your son. I think um, that's, that's something I really admire in you. And I, you know, chiropractic and, and a more holistic world has always been something that lived within me. And I've always been like a very spiritually oriented person, which I think is why I've been drawn into this path of like life potential and living vitalistically. But I didn't really encounter people who really inspired me or showed me, specifically speaking, what pregnancy and birth and preconception could look like until I was kind of down the rabbit hole into chiropractic. So I just want to acknowledge you that it's really amazing that you already have this very clear vision and, um, and fire within you that's inspired you to like walk down this path that definitely not very many people choose. And when I say that, I mean this path to like really discovering well-being, really discovering where joy comes from. And those things for me are like mutually inclusive, like well-being and taking care of oneself and experiencing joy. They go together. Um, but yeah, my pregnancy, so I have a son, maybe three next month. Um, I have a very dear friend who had a daughter when we were in chiropractic school, his wife, he's a man, but his wife gave birth to their daughter. And it was a very, almost want to say like calculated pregnancy. Like they were so intentional about getting pregnant and it was a six month process before they even really started to try. And these individuals were in their thirties at the time, but, um, just really like, improving their nutrition, really doing a lot more internal work, really laying the ground, or as we'd say before, we sow the soil to plant vegetables. Like it has to be really, really nourished. And so yeah. I watched this whole process of my friend and his wife really like nurturing the soil that they wanted to fertilize, right? And then they, they got pregnant with their daughter and had this incredibly intentional pregnancy. Every decision through the pregnancy was very calculated. They didn't just do everything that their providers said to them. It was like they had really done their research with every single option, if you will, um, that came up. And so I got to kind of witness that process and see it firsthand. And then they had a beautiful birth in a birth center that was totally non-medicated and in a tub and you know, I think his wife was in labor for multiple days. I mean, she mm. was in labor for a couple of days and they have this brilliant little girl who's now five and she's, I mean, she's like an indigo child, just the, the level of life inside this little being. It's like, wow, like, dang, kids <laughs> can be so, so Inspiring. vibrant. Yeah. So when I got pregnant with my son, it was a total surprise, like with you and Lucas, like we weren't trying to get pregnant. I had had really good habits before I got pregnant, but I, I would have wanted, I think, to have more preconception intention, which with the second child, we did more of that. But um, yeah, so I had seen this amazing model and that really inspired a lot of um, the readings that I offer to people in my practice when they want to go down a more, what I consider a more 
empowered birth path, really understanding what you can choose and what different options around pregnancy and birth look like and what real nutrition looks like and what, why maybe you might not want to get 7,000 ultrasounds or why you might start questioning if and when you give your child a vaccination and just a different sort of, I don't know, a different sort of look, peeling back the infrastructure behind birth and pregnancy and I think, recognizing- I think it's about making it like, like you said, making it more empowered, but it's just to people listening, like, I don't think it's about really the decision that you come to. I think it's just about the inquisition and the fact that you're asking and the fact that you're learning your options, like you said, that's going to make you feel more empowered. Exactly. And, and understanding that you ultimately are a consumer. So even though your physician might give you, or your midwife might give you a recommendation, if you really intuitively feel like that's not the right thing for you and your body and your birth and your baby, that you get to say no. And I think a lot of women and partners are just not, they're not aware of that. And I also have to say, I think in regular OBGYN care, they are really not experts on perinatal nutrition. And so a lot of people are just told they need to take you know, a prenatal vitamin that has folic acid and DHA in it, and they'll be fine. When really, like, there's so much more to it than that, and your body is drawing on so many resources to be able to grow a human. Well, the thing is, too, is they're also not, like, the reason I love holistic and alternative medicine and health and just that world is because it really focuses on how the individual is unique and different to the next person. And I think when you go in, just from my experience to an OB, it's like they do everything really routine and right by the book. Like my care probably looks very similar to someone else's. Obviously my baby's breached. So like that, that's the only really like difference, but like things that they do in terms of screenings and, and all that, when it's like, not everyone needs those things. Like, for example, like, I think it's just, it's like a by the book thing. It's like the standard, like so we have, so I have like the herpes simplex and I told my doctor that, and she was like, okay, so the net, the last, um, the last month of your pregnancy, I'm going to put you on this, this herpes pill to suppress a, an outbreak. And I'm like, why? And she's like, well, just, just to suppress any outbreak. I'm like, well, I haven't had an outbreak since probably 2016, since I was in high school. So I don't really think it really, you know, it might come up in pregnancy, but it, I don't think I need to really take a prescription pill for it right now when I haven't dealt with it. Like if I, if, you know, I do, maybe we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And she's like, well, you, you need to take it on the last month. And I'm like, is, is that because you really believe that I need to, and I, and you're listening to what I'm telling you, or is that because it's standard by the book, you know? So I think OBGYNs, I mean, I'm sure I don't want to generalize, but like they don't really look at the individual like an individual. It's more of just like a routine practice. Exactly. And I think, um, so with my first pregnancy, I delivered him overseas and I wanted to have like a home birth and I wanted to have a midwife and where I was living at just, it wasn't something we had access to. So I had OBGYN care and because we did not use our health insurance, we paid out of pocket. Um, I definitely had a lot more influence in what I participated in and not, but it's such a stark contract, 
contrast, excuse me, to my experience now because I have a midwife this round and I had an appointment with her yesterday and even um, like just the example of the herpes thing, right? Like I'm absolutely certain that there's probably some supplementations or tinctures or vitamins that you could be taking that would have the same effect 1, as taking an antiviral or an, you know, an antibiotic or whatever it is that she was going to put you on. And, um, you know, I get it. I get that medical school, it's like four years where they can't even teach you everything you need to know in four years. And I, I understand that there's going to be gaps in education. I see that in my own education as well. And I think that as a practitioner, like you have to be really passionate about finding those sort of alternative or more holistic things. But just to your point, I think that the routine like glucose test is BS, dude. I did not do that. Um, we did, we've done one ultrasound really more for us. It's like, once you start going down the rabbit hole, you're like, wait, why do, why do I need all this? Like, is it going to change the outcome? Well, I was like, I understand that the glucose test, it screens for, um, what is it? Pregnancy diabetes or gestational diabetes, gestational diabetes. But I'm like, one, I never had that. I never had diabetes beforehand. I never had trouble or struggled my blood, my blood sugar. I understand that things happen and things change during pregnancy, but like, can't you just ask me questions about how I feel depending on my diet? Like, do you feel jittery when you eat sugar or do you feel like you need to eat? And, and if you go a long time without eating, you don't feel like your blood sugar is balanced. It's like, I feel like there's other ways to go about it other than drinking a sugary ass drink. That's literally going to do nothing for my body. Yeah. And you know, what's even, I asked my midwife when she sent me the paperwork I had to sign to like, I don't know. How do you say that? Give consent, consent that I didn't yeah. want that. Um, so I just asked her out of curiosity. I'm like, well, what, what sort of treatment do they put women on if they do have gestational diabetes? Well, they have you car count your carbohydrates. Like they mm -hmm. just put you on a lower carb diet. So it's mm -hmm. like, why are, why are we just not recommending women to stay away from high GI foods, Yeah, which we know for anyone is a better choice. Like, just because you're pregnant, you shouldn't be eating all the ice cream and the chocolates. And it's okay to have those things every now and again. But, but that, it's also okay to have to those things point. every now and then when you're not pregnant too. That's the thing. It's like totally, people totally. make an excuse about when you're pregnant. It's, this is the time to indulge, but it's not. You know, you're, you know, it's actually probably less the, so the time to indulge. <laughs> if, if you believe that you are what you eat, then don't you believe that like your baby becomes what you eat? Do you want your baby to be developing off of like strictly ice cream and Taco Bell and all these things, which is fine if you have them once in a while, but it doesn't need to be all the time. I, I digress. That's a completely different subject that we could go down. But it's totally relevant. It's totally yeah. relevant. And it's the same thing with breast milk. Yeah. It's like if you have two women and they're both breastfeeding and one has a real crap diet and maybe she even drinks Coca-Cola or smokes cigarettes. And then you have another woman who's really focused on, um, you know, trying to nourish herself with whole foods. I mean, which, which milk quality do you think is better? Right. And it's, I guess I hold a belief, maybe it's because I live in Colorado and I'm not in a place where people have less access to cleaner foods and real foods, that my perception is skewed. 
But I, I honestly feel like we're living in a day and age where it's not a surprise to anyone anymore that like eating at McDonald's or having a milkshake every day or drinking soda is just not healthy. Like I said, maybe it's just because of a function of where I live. And I also lived in California for seven years, but it's like, dude, I've got to believe that in Alabama, like people get that drinking Coke every day yeah. is not good for you. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. Little subtler things like not cooking with vegetable oils and things like that might be more shocking to people, but like fast food in general has yeah. a bad reputation. Right. And it's not about like, ju- like judgment towards women who do that. It's just about being informed. And I think that's what we're talking about in any, all of, all of this that we're talking about with pregnancy and whatever, it's just being more informed and making more informed decisions so that you can one prioritize your body and your own health, but also your baby's health. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's, that's one of my biggest, um, I guess, kind of missions in the work that I do is really to just be a point of resource for people. And I have so much respect for all the women in my practice and they're all quite different and they have different backgrounds and they come from different places and different parts of the world. Um, but I see my role not only as obviously giving them an aligned adjustment that they can heal from, but also being able to be a point of access to having these conversations, to providing resources or getting you to see the right practitioner if it's not me, whether that's a pelvic floor physical therapist or a midwife or a nutritionist or whatever, just being a resource for people because I think that's the the biggest hurdle, the biggest obstacle is being under-resourced. And having your only, your only information coming through either being one, the internet, which is like, everything's like health line. (laughs) Totally. It's like the same, it's the same, like five pages if you Google anything pregnancy related. And then the other is your, your medical provider. So unless you've already had the, the information to kind of know you could step outside of the medical a medicalized birth, then really those are your two biggest pieces of information and, and they, they don't give you a lot of option, I think. Speaking of being under-resourced, I want to talk about your first birth experience and then what you're planning on doing differently this time. Sure. So I knew I wanted to have a natural vaginal birth that was unmedicated. I wanted to do it in my house and that just kind of like you've discovered in your journey, it just like wasn't a viable option. My husband and I decided to find the most, what we consider female-centered OB. So I had a doula in Colombia. So I gave birth to my son in Colombia and South America. And this doula was a good fit for me because A, she was bilingual. So like giving birth in another language where you're at the time, I mean, I could speak Spanish at the time, but I wasn't fluent. And when you're like under the stress of labor, your brain's like not thinking in a language that you're learning. So it was important for me to have a doula who could communicate with me in my first language. And even my husband at the time, his English, um, you know, he had English, but it wasn't, it wasn't where I felt secure enough to not have someone there speaking English. So I had a doula. Um, I had significantly less prenatal care in my first pregnancy. And I think the OB was like kind of okay with that because I was like this weird North American lady, you know? Um, but then let's see. So I labored at home until I was six centimeters when I went into labor. 
my doula came over and was with me from 4 to 10 p.m. in my house. And then we all went to the hospital together. And because we paid out of pocket, we had like our own suite. And I, would, I had a catheter put in my arm, but it was never hooked up to an IV. Yeah, so that they do that as like a policy, just in case you need medication or whatever. Um, I labored totally naturally until I was 10 centimeters and the OB was checking my cervical dilation periodically, which is really painful. Mm. And then once I was ready to push, they take you from your suite and take you to a room where like everybody else is delivering and you're just like separated by a curtain next to the OR. So I was like in this room with other people and my husband and my doula had to go and scrub in. So like they had to go and like get scrubs on. Yeah, it was like totally natural to like totally medical in like five seconds. What? And, and the whole time I was laboring in the first stage of labor, I was allowed to move and be in whatever position I wanted and take a shower and whatever. And then like the second I was ready to push Lou out, um, I had to be on my back and it was like colloquial in that essence. And um, so I'm like pushing the baby and you could see his head. My husband like told me he's got a lot of hair and um, the doctor like took his heart rate. I've been pushing for like five minutes and he was like, you have to stop. The baby's in distress. We have to, we need to pull him out with forceps. And so in that, so then I ended up getting pain medication and had like a lidocaine put on my, my lady parts. And then he gave me an episiotomy and he pulled my son out with forceps. And so it ended up being quite medical in the end and it wasn't what I wanted. And um, it, you know, after you've been laboring for like 15, 16 hours, it's really hard to be an advocate for yourself. And my son was born super healthy, came out, he was chill, like no crying, just lovely and chill. And I got to nurse him right away. And at least in Columbia, they don't clip the cord until it stops pulsing. So they already have a policy around that. But then everything after was like supernatural, you know, nursing, we, we declined any sort of infant care. So we didn't let them wash him. We didn't let them give him any medications or vaccinations. I mean, they totally thought like, who is this weird North American lady? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this time the plan is I've been seeing a home birth midwife and she's wonderful. And the plan is to deliver the baby at home. She will bring a birth tub. So there's a possibility he could be born in water. Um, you know, it's hard to say, this is like what we're, this is what we're manifesting. And there's always a possibility that things are going to go differently. And there has to be grace around that. But the plan is yes, that he'll be delivered at home. I remember the first meeting we had with this midwife, my husband asked her how she'll know when I'm ready to push the baby out. Because she said she doesn't do any cervical dilation checks. And he was like, well, how are you going to know? She's like, oh, trust me. You know, like the mama knows. Her sounds let us know. Like we know when the baby's coming. You don't need to invade the vagina <laughs> with your fingers right. to know. So I just remember being like, wow, I guess I didn't even realize that that was like a more routine kind of thing that was unnecessary. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what this birth story looks like and how this little boy makes his appearance and entrance into the world. And, you know, I'm doing my own work to, to feel safe and strong enough to do it in my home and 
honestly, for me, it actually feels a lot safer. Like I feel that that environment is far more trustworthy to me. But there's also, like I said, there's some grace and permission for if, if I do really need pain medication or if obviously something isn't going right, that we could still end up in a clinic. And if that's what happens, then that's how it plays out. And like you said before, there's no judgment about that. It's just, there's an intention for this little man to come at home. But even though I didn't have a whole lot of prenatal care with my first child, it's dramatically different from what I've experienced this round, dramatically. Do you have any tips for anyone who's looking to do a more natural birth or home birth or just go the midwife route? What would you be, be your tips? Um, I think getting that book, The Ancient Map to Modern Birth, is a really good place to start. It's written by a, a midwife, but she really informs you of all the different options. So I think it's a it's a it's self-discovery. It's a it's figuring out where you feel the safest, not because of what your practitioner is telling you or your husband is telling you, but because that's really what resonates with you. And then um, when you're interviewing people to be your practitioner, like not just, oh, this is my insurance, so I'm going to go here. But like really interview people and ask them questions that are important to you. If, it's, if you want to deliver in a hospital, but it's important for you to have vaginal birth, you need to know what that obese cesarean rate is. You need to know how long they're okay with you being in labor. They need to, you need to know how frequently they induce people. Um, you know, and some women, those things are, are less important to them and they have beautiful births that they totally feel aligned with in the very medical model. Um, so it's not a one size fits all thing, but it's, that's a great book to start with because it kind of peels open all these questions to start asking yourself, which then allow you to start asking whomever you're interviewing to be your, your partner, right? To be the person who's guiding you through your experience. So yeah, it's just kind of figuring out who you are and how you feel safe. Before we wrap up, I want to get into postpartum a little bit. You gave me the book, the, or you recommended the book, The First 40 Days, and I've been loving it. Can you talk a little bit about what postpartum in that period looks for you looks like for you? For me personally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know a little bit more of the story with my first son, but I had a really rough postpartum, um, specifically around breastfeeding. My son had a really wicked tongue tie that went undiagnosed until he was four weeks old, so we really struggled. Um, I gave birth overseas, so my mom wasn't there to help me. I, I just felt very lonely, and I was really committed to nursing my kid, which I did end up nursing until he was a little under 23 months. Um, so we, we like fought for that relationship. So this time I'm like committed to doing a much better first 40 days thing, asking for help, setting up, we set up a meal train so that, you know, these five mothers are going to have food coming to their homes. So they're not worried about cooking, um, setting up a support community, my, my mind is telling me that I really want to try to do the first 21 days of really staying in my house. And I think you and I resonate in this way that we're both a little bit like stir crazy. You know, it's going to be a challenge. I know it's going to be a challenge to just be in my house for three weeks, but really doing the best I can do with that, establishing a good nursing relationship 
and that also like comes back to support. Like my, my midwife is an IBCLC. So she's actually like a certified lactation consultant, but having the baby checked the day they're born so you can avoid potential issues. Um, my parents are here this time. Like I live near them. So I, I've asked them if they would be willing to help me with my older son, which they totally are, but just a lot more asking for help. Um, a lot more preparation food wise. So like in the first 40 days, stocking my pantry with the necessary ingredients, making the bone broths, freezing them. Yeah. And when people ask you when you're pregnant, like, what do you want? What, what do you want for your baby shower? What do you really want? It's like, I would rather have you cook for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or do like, my laundry. Yeah. I just want a meal or, you know, I, if you can just do the dishes and, and do it lovingly and know that that's, that's a huge contribution, but yeah, I don't think it's going to be easy. I don't think staying home for 40 days is going to be easy and I'm, I'm not going to force myself to do it for 40 days, but um, only doing the necessary traveling out, maybe a walk, utilizing that now Whole Foods, you can like just do grocery pickup. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I think we'll just do that and have like someone pick it up for us. Yeah. You know, like little things like that, that just let you focus on being at home. And then lastly, what would be your tips for somebody wanting to get into chiropractic care if they haven't already been seeing a chiropractor? How do they go about getting started with that? Or how do they go about picking the right person? So you can always send me an email and tell me where you live. I would be happy to see who's in my community and culture who serves your area. So that's always easy. Like I said, doing a Google search for vitalistic chiropractors where you live. Um, I think always reading the about me's, which a lot of people skim over, but reading that and seeing again, if it's somebody that you align with their mission and what they're sharing about themselves and knowing that it's for me, it's not so much about the technique. Like I don't really care if someone uses an instrument or their hands, but it's a lot more about the intention. So if you're calling somebody and you, you kind of want to understand like what's their approach and intention with care, you just ask them, what's your intention? You know, what, it, what are you up to when you're actually working with me? Or as someone who's asymptomatic too, a lot of chiropractors don't even know what the hell to do with somebody who comes in without pain. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I don't really know how to help you. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, chiropractic is for everybody. It's for everybody. And then how can someone find you or work with you if they're in the Denver area? So my business is called The Wellness Tribe. Um, I have a website, which is the-wellness-tribe, I'm sorry, the-wellness-tribe.com. And um, you have like show notes for this, right? So you can always put my email and my phone, my practice phone number in there. But if you are in Denver, of course, I would love for you to come in and see me, especially if you're a mom or a woman or pregnant. But even if you're an old man, that's great too. <laughs> and then um, social media. Yeah, I do. I have Instagram and Facebook. I'm better with Instagram than Facebook. And it's at the Wellness Tribe Denver. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you. I'll see you Tuesday. <laughs> yeah.